Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Trash Talk podcast. I'm excited today to be here with Sally Brown. She is a research professor at the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences, College of the Environment at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, she is very awarded. Some of her awards include the Washington Organics Recycling Council Outstanding Achievement in Organics Recycling Award uh, from the EPA. She got national first place in the Clean Water Act Recognition Awards Biosolids Exemplary Management category for her research activities. And um, another one is from BioCycle, her Passion, Vision, and Grid Award for research in biosolids. Just to name a few, uh, she had quite a few more on the list, but uh, welcome, Sally Brown. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure. I've read a lot of your articles in uh, BioCycle, the industry mag, and have um, really enjoyed them. I typically flip to the last page just to start with that stuff. Um, you've done a lot of research on organics management practices and the comparative benefits of, of those types of practices, including anaerobic composting, AC, and anaerobic digestion, or AD. I've also had done a lot of hands-on work in my garden. And in your garden, good. Yeah. I'm also a gardener. So... Um, so when you're talking about composting and anaerobic digestion, you're talking about food and plant waste, biosolids, which are uh, typically made from sewage sludges. Um, there's composting and digestion, soil remediation, using these uh, amendments and products. Um, can you give us a layperson's overview of what these terms mean and how they impact the average person? And you promise me no long answer questions. <laughs> uh, but here we're starting right off with one. So, so if you think about a natural system, if you think about a forest um, and what goes on in a forest or a, uh, a system where humans aren't playing the primary role, um, it takes us to the big question of where does a bear poop? And you know the answer to that, whether or not you've seen the scat yourself. Oh, I um, slipped in it. Sure. Yeah, there you go. So... So in a natural system like that, this is normal. And that bear scat and skunk scat and raccoon scat and deer scat all goes back to enriching the soils in the system. And the stuff that doesn't get eaten and turned into poop turns into more soil and more organic matter in the soil because it's being eaten not by something you can see and run away from, but by a soil microbe or a worm. And so in a natural system, the organics that are produced every year when the sun shines and the rain falls, um, and here that's fingers crossed, hoping that the rain starts falling again in the Pacific Northwest and in California, um, and not so much on the East Coast. Um, it's all part of a natural system that keeps that system self-sustaining and healthy. So enter people into the picture. And we, um, while occasionally go poop in the woods, most of that is done in um, nice tile bathrooms. And while we occasionally pick a berry from a bush in the, in the woods, most of our eating is done from Uber Eats or the Amazon Fresh or um, supermarkets or restaurants where the food has come from a field and the way our society has developed 
the poop and the food scraps don't go back to nourish the soil. So anything that we do to take what we have thought of as waste for decades, and it wasn't always thought of as waste, um, we've had a luxury of being able to consider this stuff as waste. Anything that we can do to bring that back to the soil to feed the soil uh, makes that system healthier and makes our planet more resilient. That right. So just to sum it up, um, you know, the, the biosolids are basically human scat that goes to a wastewater treatment plant. And I had the fortune of visiting a lot of these doing a statewide waste characterization for cow recycle back in 2017. And there are a lot of different methods to make this, right? There's uh, ovens that cook it and turn it. Uh, so, they make different grades. Sometimes there's greenhouses with robots that rake it around. Uh, so uh, there's a, a common common thing in most of the plants, especially the larger ones. And that is the dirty water comes in. It looks kind of just like dirty water. No floaters are visible for those that might be wondering, um, even if you wouldn't admit that you were wondering about that. Um, at any rate, uh, the water stops. What can sink, sinks. That's called primary settling. Gets put through a grid screen. So that's where you get um, snakes. They have found snakes in these plants um, get removed. And then... It goes through a whole series of biological treatments. Um, so it looks like muddy, gross water, especially if you know what's in it um, to you. But to a microbe, it's like, oh, my God, this is so amazingly good. Um, and so microbial decomposition is a way to both kill any pathogens that's in the water that are in the water um, and also turn that water back into water as the microbes eat this. They settle and die, and that then the dead microbes plus the stuff from primary goes into a, an anaerobic digester, and that's used to further kill pathogens, and it also makes gas. And so what's happened in the last 30 years is we've started to realize, okay, we can use these systems to protect public health. Nobody in the U.S. gets cholera anymore. Um, it's a good deal. Um we can use them to keep our waters clean by taking that water that we're using to carry the waste, take the nutrients out of it, and take the carbon out of it. So when it's released back into a river or a lake or an ocean, it's not adding too much food with it. And we can also realize that we can use these systems as resource recovery. So a lot, and you're going to see a lot more of this in California, a lot of the water that's being used is reclaimed from wastewater treatment. And it's a super reliable, super clean source of water that can be very handy when it doesn't rain. We can use the organics that come in for anaerobic digestion for energy capture. And in many cases, a lot of these plants are not only using the stuff that comes in, um, but are taking food waste and food scraps and pumping those directly into the digesters to get even more energy. And then the solids that come out, the biosolids, um, I tell you, you want to grow vegetables in your garden, you get some class A biosolids and how many onions would you like me to ship? How many leeks would you like me to ship? I have more food. Anyway, the point is these things are very good for the soil. 
So this is just one aspect of the waste spectrum that people don't think about because, you know, you want when you you flush, you want that to go away and you never want to think about it again. But it's just one of the other sources of organics, food scraps being another. And it's good shit. Excuse me. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I used to live on a farm and, and did uh, compost my uh, waste. And man, when I applied that to just a grassy area, the grass there grew more than twice as big. It was amazing. You got it. Yep. Yeah, it was just like lush green, darker green. And mm-hmm. uh, it was amazing. So, um, yeah, we're noticing that, you know, in California where we have a lot of food waste diversion requirements and not enough compost facilities, a lot of that stuff are, um, going to wastewater treatment plants. And I've had, you know, direct experience with some of these different systems doing special events down in Los Angeles. I I thought it was really interesting that, um, the food waste would first go to like a big pulper. That would mm-hmm. basically make a slurry, and then all of the uh, larger materials, like paper plates and everything, would get separated out, and then the sludge would go to make gas at the anaerobic digestion plant. And so that's um, biomethane that they're producing, and that is very similar to natural gas. Uh, it can actually be used in place of it in um, most systems, via uh, vehicles or uh, cogen plants or even cooking stoves. So that's um, kind of the skinny on the anaerobic digestion. Um, the one important thing to realize with anaerobic digestion when you're deciding like what's best for the universe or for me is that anaerobic digestion doesn't preclude having something to make your plants fabulous. Um, it gives you a digestate, a solid, semi-solid material that you can compost depending on how much pathogens you've gotten killed, you can directly use it. Um, so it's not one or the other. Anaerobic digestion prior to composting or prior to land app just means getting another piece of value out of it. Out of the right, although it is pretty expensive compared to directly composting that uh, material, right? Yeah, so if you have to build a digester from scratch, absolutely. If you can piggyback onto something that exists at the wastewater treatment facility, that's a, a wonderful thing because... What happens when you introduce food waste, and we, we did a trial with this with a grad student where she was um, looking at waste from, we have a C's candy factory, not far. And the stuff that lands on the floor, you know, God forbid that should end up in your box. You don't want, you don't want the truffles that were on the ground to be in your Valentine gift display. So if you feed those directly into a digester, um, it means that the bugs get even happier in the digester. So they make more gas and um, you end up with a reduced volume of solids. So, Right. Thanks to entropy, every time you go a step down the food chain, you lose about 90% of that energy, right? Yeah, yeah, something. Anyway, the point is um, that if you're feeding into an existing plant, an existing digester, the cost of anaerobic digestion is actually reduced because you're getting more efficient digestion when you're co-digesting. Right. Yeah. More energy from food than from manure. Yeah. 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 Uh, 10 times more maybe. Yeah. Well, just think about it. You, nobody's eaten it yet. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, actually, uh, on that same waste characterization study, I ended up at a candy factory, and they were just Gaylord boxes full of caramel and nougat, and they were just sending that to uh, cows as cow feed. So different kind of digester. Yeah, I don't know. Some hyped up cows after they eat all <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, diabetic cows. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe. So um, not that they live very long, unfortunately. Uh, anyway, so I, I kind of have a chip on my shoulder about anaerobic digestion, and maybe you could uh, assuage those uh, concerns. But when I worked at UC Davis as their zero waste coordinator. I implemented organics recycling practices for all of the eateries and uh, special events everywhere. So we were composting practically all the organics being um, generated and got all that spun up in six months. But then uh, pretty much immediately after, it was all getting sent to compost at a a nearby facility. Uh, Pretty much immediately after, some of the solid waste folks came to me and said, hey, you got this great food waste stream. We just built this new digester we're going to divert your food waste stream into this digester. And I said, well, what happens to the digestate? And I said, oh, well, we're going to landfill it for free for them at our own landfill. And it's just like, ah, killing me here. Like, I'm so frustrated by this. Um, yeah, so so I'd written a column about this um, a while back. It's like, who gets it right? Who gets every step right? And and that's a case there of them getting a really important step right and then completely missing the boat at the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you want them to divert food scraps. You Anaerobic digestion is an extra bonus. And then the key, though, is you want to bring that back to the soil. So exactly. it can... And, and by missing that, it's kind of like, come on, guys, this is not that hard. Uh, you know, there's different perspectives on it, and I'm really excited to hear yours. But I've heard from Jeff Lawton, who is a permaculture guy from Greening the Desert, and I was talking to him about this issue, and he said, "Well, do you want to live in a uh, energy economy or a, a soil economy?" And he, his perspective was that you would get more soil from composting organics than digesting them and then using the digestive. So is anaerobic digestion of food waste uh, preferable to anaerobic composting? So first you got to say, you have to say aerobic composting because you get aerobic, right. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, this is to me like you're deciding between chocolate and vanilla fudge. And the most important thing is that you got ice cream. Um, And uh, what I mean by that is it's not going to a landfill directly. And so once you've made that step, and that is a huge, very important step that is not done for so much of the food scraps that are being generated. Once you get that, then it's a decision. You know, you get, it depends on where your energy is coming from, where you live, how carbon intense your energy is. Um, Washington State, we have pretty carbon neutral energy. Um, How bad your soils are, how much of a, uh, either way, you're going to win. Land use availability. Kind of yeah, stuff. either way, you're going to win. Right. So the big benefit, um, and that's most commonly recognized, is the methane avoidance from landfills because landfills are basically anaerobic digesters with very Gone low capture wrong. rates. Yeah, yeah. 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 Super inefficient, right. super high release rates. Like, yeah. No, you can do it in a controlled environment where you regulate the temperature, you regulate the mix rate, or you can do it in a football field where you don't do anything. 
right. which is going to work better. Yeah, I mean, it's astounding how much gas you could get out of food. I, I once did the calculations for um, Los Angeles County because they posted their, um, you know, food waste generation rates and their planned composting facilities that were coming online. They were only getting like 5 to 10% of food scraps. And then over the next 15 years, they're going to divert about half. So 250 tons of 500 tons a day um, uh, with new facilities coming online. That's still 250 tons a day of food waste that's left uh, going to landfills or without a solution on the horizon. So uh, I'm kind of a space nerd and, and was really interested. I noticed and, your mug. I like oh, it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Star Trek mug. So, yeah, is um, next generation or Picard. That is, or... yeah, that's that's next generation. That was yeah. the one uh, I got yep. me started on that whole. Yeah, um, yeah. I made my son start watching that when he was four, and yeah, I feel nice. that's one of my big accomplishments as a parent that he's seen the whole series. Nice. Yeah, yeah. that probably set him up for success. Exactly. Right. So, um, yeah, so, you know, the SpaceX Starship is methane-powered. It's mm -hmm. this new largest rocket ever made, full-stack uh, booster and Starship. Um, uh, and I was thinking, how much um, methane uh, would it take to fill this thing, and how much food waste from L.A. would it take to fill that? And then how many times could we fill that in a year? It's and fun to do those kind of calcs, right? It is, because yeah. it really yeah. puts things in perspective to, to yeah. realize like how much of this is, is happening. So you could get the full stack of this thing launched every like 5.6 days just off the gas from that food waste that would otherwise be going to landfills. So it's a whole lot of methane that's being generated from our landfills. It's the top source of methane emissions, even more than uh, cows, cow farts. I, close. I, I think cow farts, because everybody likes their ribeyes, um, I think cow farts are bigger right now. But, but but the deal is, it's easy. It's We know you don't need any silver bullet here. You just need to put your food scraps in a different garbage can. Right. In other words, it's, it's not a high-tech thing to eliminate this methane. It's very cost-effective and doable. Right. So in terms of anthropogenic sources, the landfills are probably the Land is number largest. one. Yeah. Yeah. And that could all be avoided. I was recently watching the um, CARB presentation on the sampling that they were doing above various sites and, and landfills to see how much methane was coming off and, and where it was blowing and everything. And, uh, you know, I was just amazed by by the quantity of it all and how there was such a difference between different landfills. Like the ones that accepted tires had a lot fewer methane emissions. And I was thinking, well, it's probably because the percentage of organics going under the open face was less because there's more tires. So less organics uh, in the mix, less um, yep. gas being produced. So, um, so what about biosolids uh, as a soil amendment and how that compares to uh, aerobic compost? Um, so the biosolids are very consistent um, from a particular plant. So the nitrogen, so the one of the deals with recycling organics is not only are you returning carbon to soils, you're returning fertility to soils. And depending on your feedstocks, that'll tell you how rich in fertility the material you're adding is. So with biosolids, um, because of that pee and that poop, 
you tend to have fairly high nitrogen, which is the most important fertilizer, also relatively high phosphorus. So your biosolids will be from a particular plant really consistent. Um, the biosolids I help make have about 6 to 7% nitrogen in them, and that's very high, about 1.5% phosphorus. Um, and so that is typically used, those materials, if they're used straight out of the plant, are typically used as an alternative to nitrogen fertilizer. So they're put down um, anywhere from three to six tons per acre as an application rate. Um, a compost, depending if it's just food, food yard, what kind of food you get, how much yard you get, how much woody material you get, is going to be much less or not as consistent in terms of its fertilizer value. It will tend to be lower in nitrogen than the biosolids. Typically, instead of 6%, you're talking 2% as a high rate. Um, and so it's used more as a soil conditioner, and only in some cases is it rich enough to be used as an alternative to fertilizer. So that means that instead of applying at 5 tons an acre, you can put it down at 20 tons an acre if you can afford to or if you have the material available. So you're going to get more benefits to the soil more quickly because you're putting more on. But they're both, you know, in their way, again, chocolate or vanilla fudge, they're both delicious. If you're a soil, you'll take either one. I, I love the uh, metaphor of soil eating ice cream, but... So um, the compost would do other things like um, increase water retention capacity that the biosolids wouldn't do as much? The biosolids will do. You just got to give it a little time. Okay. You know, you got to give it a few more years of application. Uh, we did a survey of soils in Washington State, long-term biosolids or compost applications. And excuse me, in both cases, you saw improvements in um, the soil is lighter, it's fluffier, it has lower bulk density. The soil lets water soak in more quickly, higher infiltration rates. The soil holds on to water better, so that means more drought resilience. The soils had higher nitrogen and phosphorus compared to controls. So compost or biosolids, if this becomes not your just like, let's try it once and move on, but this is how I tend my field, you're going to see benefits. Interesting. So um, not really uh, one's better than the other. It's just depending on uh, you know how much you apply, and, and both of them will give you those uh, long-term benefits, carbon sequestration increased, et cetera. So we may need to change the metaphor from the two flavors to either ice cream or a dark chocolate bar. Yeah. They both serve a similar function. Just let's see how many food metaphors I can get in here. <laughs> so, um, you know, not every uh, biosolid is used in ag, though. I, I remember hearing that uh, the biosolids coming out of Oakland were getting buried in caves to do land settling or something. That's um, in part of LA, they do deep well injection of some of the material. Yeah. It's about a little over 50%. California is pretty good. Um, and there's, um, I know a recent paper just came out of um, UC Merced um, looking at carbon sequestration rates with different biosolids. Um, Washington state, we're better than you guys. 
Uh, we use most of our biosolids get used either in dryland wheat and um, commercial tree plantations. That's part of my job is to ride around in a truck in the woods and say six tons, four tons, <laughs> give application rates. But in general, one of the tragedies is that, uh, and this is clearly shows you where I'm coming from, um, but the fact that this stuff works so well on soil. Um, in the forest, for example, we just looked at carbon sequestration rates with the biosolids application over time. And at a poor soil, not even poor soil, but in a not good, not as good soil, each ton of biosolids gave you five tons of CO2 equivalent. That is amazing. In dry really land, is. Yeah. In dry land wheat with a 400-mile round-trip haul, so it's a lot of gas you're burning to get there. The biosolids are giving you over a ton of CO2 for each ton of biosolids applied. And the fact that you have this and it does such wonders for the soil and that you're throwing half of it in a landfill, it's like, come on, you can do better than this. And it, anyway, this gets me going. Yeah, no, it was amazing to hear um, what you were writing about in in the BioCycle article or journal series about how applying these uh, biosolids to forests can increase the tree growth by like 30%. Or more. Or more. Easy more. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's like, if you think of, there's so many things you can get down on Florida about these days. And you'd be very happy that I live in the exact opposite corner of the U.S. <laughs> from Florida. And I, I feel there are a lot of good people in Florida, but um, they have a big um, commercial tree plantation industry in the whole southeast region of the country. None of that is used by sellers. That's all cases where they could use some help with climate. They could use some help with tree growth. And come on, guys. You can, even if you're alone in the tractor, not wear a mask while you're applying, and it's okay. Yeah, that was a, another bad reference that didn't get you to chuckle. I was hoping for a chuckle there. No, I, I got it. I just, <laughs> it was slightly disgusting thinking about applying biosolids without a mask. <laughs> so, um, I mean, this is fascinating. I, I'd love to talk about compost, but this biosolid stuff really gets me going, too, and I'm apparently. So, um, one thing that I hear often is that people are concerned about the, uh, pathogens in biosolids as well as persistent pharmaceuticals and, and things like that. So I guess it's less of an issue when you're applying it on tree crops, yeah, but, so, uh, food crops. So you have to realize, um, it's your poop. It started out as your poop and everybody knows you can get sick from poop, right? You wash your hands. There are lots of, um, like, he didn't wash his hands. You know, this is a major social faux pas. Um, and that's Especially because easy. untreated waste, whether animal or human, can make you sick. Um, but the deal is we have wastewater treatment, and the whole point of that is to kill the pathogen. So that's the first and primary point of it. Um, and it's all, it's not done by an industry. It's done by the municipality, the same people that collect your garbage, provide you drinking water. It's, it's not, um, it's highly regulated. It's very easy. They're, they're public agencies. They have to be transparent. And 
The other thing to realize is that the stuff coming into most of these plants are not from industrial discharges from your house. It's from when you take a shower, when you pee, when you wash your dishes. And if you have a headache and take meds or have some kind of infection and take an antibiotic, your body is not very efficient at using all the meds you were given. So for example, um, you will secrete in your pee a good portion of the pharmaceuticals that you take. And we can now detect these at very low parts per billion. So that's one followed by nine zeros um, concentrations. And you can find them in the biosolids and they're coming from your toilet or from the dust in your house. Uh, we did a paper where we tried to put this into everyday household exposure terms. And it turns out that um, birth control pills, people were very concerned about ethanyl estradiol, the hormone from birth control pills showing up in the biosolids. You would have to eat about 10 kilograms of wet biosolids a day to get the same dose of ethanyl estradiol as you get in one birth control pill. And if you think of the ramifications on not only your health, but your um, sex appeal from yeah. eating those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That tells you. Worse um, than yeah. For a headache, I think it was 30 wet tons of biosolids for extra strength Tylenol equivalent for one dose. Okay. So presence, concentration, hazard, these are not terms that people are used to thinking in. But if you express it in those terms, it's like, oh, I guess I don't really have to be worried. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a relief. Yeah. Um, so. And now the question the is going to be, how long is it going to take you to get that image out of your head about counting <laughs> yeah, down no. on? Yeah. I know, because it's just like little pellets, like Cocoa Puffs or something, right? Yeah, well, it's more like mud, but anyway, okay. yeah, it's, it's not nothing you would know. Anyway. Well, I've uh, seen a couple different approaches, right? There's yeah. like the pelletized ones, uh, and there's different grades, right? So they cook it more, and For then the, that yeah, becomes yeah, yeah. more of a, a pellet, so. Yeah, uh, yeah. The mud. I would. Ra I would rather eat the pellets than the mud. I guess. Well, the mud is not always class A, so the pellets right. are always class A. So, I would recommend a plate of pellets over a plate of mud any day. But really, <laughs> I would recommend like eggs and toast, or maybe some granola instead. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and then there's class B too, right? Which is yeah, cooked even B. further. It, no, class B is cooked not quite as much as uh, the class A. Right. Yeah. So maybe a few more pathogens, but more nutrients. Um, it depends on the way they treat it. And it's just so coming out of a digester is typically class B, which is what we put on the forest here in the dryland wheat. Um, we have another treatment plant in Tacoma, which is the city just south of Seattle. And they, uh, before they put stuff in the digester, they, um, use a lot of oxygen and get it really hot so it pasteurizes there. So mm. it's thermophilic and then mesophilic in the digester. And so they make a cake that's all pathogen-free, and then they make a series of soil products, um, Tagro, Tagro Classic, Tagro Potting Soil, and that's what I get delivered for my garden. And that's um, uh, 
it, it's it feels like a compost, but it it's not technically. Right. How, how does the price of a, a like a bag of biosolids compare to a compost or a ton? So um, the this is a, just a series of a different interpretations of regulatory structure. That sounds like what the hell is she talking about? Um, what it means is that the Clean Water Act, which was a great piece of environmental legislation, said that the city is responsible for covering the cost of wastewater treatment. Part of those costs are biosolids and use or disposal. So when you pay your water bill, you're paying for those biosolids. Um, mm. King County, which has a great program where I live, they do the forest application, the dryland wheat. It costs, I think, over $200 a wet ton to get those biosolids to their final home. And that cost is primarily covered by the city or the county, and that's primarily covered by your water bill. Um, what's happened in Tacoma with Tagro, and we're seeing it now also in Washington, D.C., that has Bloom, which is copied from Tagro, they're taking it and making a product that can be available, that is available for local homeowners. And they're seeing that the cost per ton goes way down. Tacoma's cost is under $25 a ton. So it's saving the, the ratepayers money. Um, for solid waste, it's been a different approach. Um, and what tends to happen, the solid waste agency is part of the municipality, but they'll, instead of doing their treatment in-house, they'll contract out. So they'll contract to a hauler, then the hauler can contract, or the the city can contract with a contract with a composter, and the city isn't then responsible for where that compost goes. So it becomes part of the business model for the composter to say, "Okay, I got to move this stuff, and my whole operation costs me fifty dollars a ton. I'm only getting a thirty dollar a ton tip fee from the city. I got to make up." the rest of my costs by selling the material. So it's a different, both of them start out as municipal issues, but they're managed differently. So the biosolids have a much higher yuck factor and their costs are covered. So it's a damn good deal for the homeowner. Compost, less of a yuck factor and less of it's covered by the municipality. So it's going to cost you more. It's not like going to cost you astronomical amounts in a grand scheme of things. It's pretty damn cheap, but it's going to cost you more. Nice. Good info. I'm going to have to get me some. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> QFC shopping network or whatever. Yeah. Like, call this number. Yeah. Ship it to your door. Yep. Uh, I don't know if that's on Amazon yet though. No, we were talking about it with the Tagro, but it hasn't quite made it there yet. Right. So, um, Another thing that you've mentioned in, in some of your articles are the use of biosolids and compost products for urban soil remediation. I know here in Sonoma County, we've suffered from a lot of fires and uh, we've lost a lot of trees and forests uh, due to that. So uh, are both of these products appropriate for that and, and which is better if so? So you're going to need a class A material. You're going to need something that the person who's working the soil is happy to stick their hand in. So um, a compost is generally very user-friendly. Um, the biosolids, you're going to need a municipality that's savvy enough to realize, oh, people might want to use this. 
and to make it into a product like Bloom in DC, um, Chicago, they compost a good portion of their biosolids as well. Um, and you know, so that it's coming, it's coming. Um, the guy is one of the leads in the San Francisco biosolids program. Now he got his master's with me and what he did for his, his degree was come up with different potting soil blends using their biosolids as a base and he grow, grew petunias. So real men do grow petunias. Um, but, um, the point there is urban soils can, and don't always, but they can have a number of concerns. One of them can be, and it isn't always, but excess lead. And that's going to be an issue in older cities um, from older homes with lead-based paint that stopped being used in the 70s and lead-based um, gasoline. Not base gasoline, but lead-amended gasoline. Um, and what we've done a lot of work on, and there's a number of people that have also done this. Kansas State, Ganga Hedarachi has done a great amount of fabulous research with this, um, is if you put a number of these amendments on the soils, they'll not only dilute the lead, um, they'll make it so that the lead is in a form that's less hazardous. That's not really? always the case, but um, one of the big concerns with lead in soil is eating the soil, eating the dirt. This is going to be, grown-ups don't tend to do this Little kids do this, and they're much better at absorbing the lead um, because they're growing. Their bones are growing. And so um, Ganga, I've done a couple with Ganga on this, and it's really cool tools. But you can see that the form of the lead has changed, and it's less bioavailable or less readily absorbed. That isn't always the case. You always will get a dilution result, but you sometimes we'll also get a reduction in bioavailability is what we call it. Um, mm -hmm. Other thing with urban soils, and this is true with fire damaged soils, their structure can be uh, really pretty lousy, compacted, um, hydrophobic, uh, not willing to let that water soak in, more like let it pool on top and run off the surface and carry some of the soil with it. Um, any of these organics can really help the natural tilth and fertility of these soils. And so in um, some cities, you see the community garden programs in the cities taking full advantage of the organics that are available. Um, I'm sorry I harp on Tacoma so much, but their whole community garden program, um, every gardener or every garden gets access to their biosolids potting soil as well as their yard waste compost. And they have a history of smelting there. So they have a history of lead and arsenic contamination. So they also use cardboard, waste cardboard, to um, and waste wood diverted. And they put the cardboard down between the raised beds in the gardens. And then they chip the wood and put the mulch on top. So you have dust control, weed control, and you have solid waste diversion. Sheet mulching. Yep. Yeah. That's great. I had some friends that lived in uh, parts of Oakland that had severe lead yep. uh, concentrations in the soils there, and yeah, they were the city was building them above ground boxes to grow their food in, so they wouldn't use uh, the soil the soil there and yep. risk the contamination. That's interesting. I didn't know that was a use of biosolids. Yeah, it not. I mean, DC, um, they were doing it a little bit in Chicago, um, a tiny bit 
they're working towards it in King County. It's this is the exception right now. It would be like a gift to everybody if it would become the rule. What a gift. Well, <laughs> gifts come in different packages. And it keeps coming. Yeah, it keeps coming. So um, what about the biomethane as a renewable energy source? I, I mean, to me, I, I don't think we should think of food waste as a, a renewable energy source because, you know, then we're encouraging the wasting of food. Granted, you're not always going to eat every piece of food, stuff rots or there's cuttings and scraps, but, um, you know, what photosynthesis is 3% efficient in converting sunlight to energy. Yeah, I don't know. While solar is 20 plus percent now. So, um, you know, should we really be focusing on that digestion or should we be focusing more on, on like composting and, um, um, so by your question, I can tell you like composting. Yes, um, and, and I am, I really don't view anaerobic digestion as the answer to everything. It can be a nice bit. If it's there, it's a nice way to squeeze a little extra out of it. As long as you don't have to spend $20 million building yourself a digester. And again, a lot of these exist at wastewater plants. Um, a lot of these also on farm digestion, um, it's really easy as um, urban dwellers to focus on food scraps. Um, but if you look at the quantity of food scraps compared to the quantity of animal manures, there's a lot of animal waste. Um, and so if you use the food scraps and, and killing pathogens and animal waste is a really important thing. And anaerobic digestion helps to do that. And preventing eutrophication with all the nitrogen. Yeah, yeah so many things. Waste. Appropriate yeah. use of animal waste is a big deal. Um, that is something we really can do a lot better job of. But if you have an on-farm digester and you add some food waste in it to it, it's great. Don't go deciding that food waste digestion standalone is your answer. Um, and... For me, as long as it makes its way back to the soil, I would aerobic composting, low infrastructure costs. Um, it may not seem like it's easy to develop a facility in California because of all the permitting requirements. But if you actually realize that composting is just an acceleration of a natural process, you get a pad, you make piles, and you turn them. And you can make lovely material. It's it it can get more complex than that. It's it it is a little more complex than that. But the basic deal is you make a pile and you turn it. Right. You know this. Uh, I, I'm kind of biased because uh, working in special events in San Francisco, we we're able to compost not only food waste but the paper products and exactly even yep. compostable plastics, which are less uh, accepted these days in many other areas. But then we go and do an event in Los Angeles area or, or uh, Orange County, and we're only able to divert food scraps. So, you know, the, all those paper products and, and things, which are actually a huge uh, portion of the waste stream from events, we can't divert. So yeah, composting no. seems, you know, like you have more uh, flexibility there for other types of organics that have less energy. Yeah, the other deal is if you want to get people to do it, you got to keep it pretty simple right. and being able to compost soil paper 
just makes it much easier. You have the picnic with the 30 family members you haven't seen and you get the paper plates. You want them all to go in the same bin as the extra hot dogs or the potato salad. It's just much, much easier. Exactly. And, so and, get and when you accept those things, you get higher participation, like you're about to say, yeah. and yep. higher recovery rates of those organics. So yeah, uh, same. that's the same thing with the compostable plastics. Yeah, they don't make good compost or anything. You know, they just turn into air and water if they break down at all. Um, but it does facilitate a lot more uh, food exactly. waste diversion, yeah. which is exactly. kind of our end goal. Yeah, yeah. And, and so if you look at the volume of the plastic fork compared to the watermelon pieces, it's tiny. Right. Yeah. I know. I, I just had an event this weekend where we were um, servicing food waste bins full of watermelon rinds. Man, those were heavy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, in, in calculating all this stuff, I've always relied on the warm model to um, help me estimate our greenhouse gas diversion uh, or avoidance from uh, composting food waste or um, uh, various organics. Uh, compared to landfilling them. But um, I've always heard that it, it kind of undercounts the benefits, particularly uh, looking at, you know, the avoided um, fugitive emissions from landfills being underestimated uh, because it, the warm model gives a lot of, um, like a high capture rate on, on landfill gas, um, as well as not looking at the in-ground carbon sequestration potential and other um, downstream benefits of compost. So Is that still the case? No. They revised the warm about 10 years ago, so it's much better for food scraps. It's not, I would argue, not nearly so good for um, yard waste, um, and that could use a redo. Um, but they've changed it so they realized, and this sounds really stupid, but they realized that when methane is produced before gas capture systems are turned on, it's likely released. Yeah. Right. And Most of the methane happens I know, really I know, early on. I know, I know, yeah. I know, I know. So it's gotten much better. It's gotten uh -huh. much better. Um, they also gave a relatively high soil carbon sequestration credit in the initial um, warm model, or in, in this new version for yard, for food scraps. So they've gotten much, much better. I think... The, you have to realize, um, and, and you want it to be different, but you have to realize that their focus there is on um, CO2 and fugitive gases and not on additional benefits or right. climate resilience. And if you read the lit review that goes along with the food scrap section in the um, in the whole warm model, they do say, you know, this does other stuff for soil that's really good, but we're not going to count it here. So mm -hmm. I think one of the things we need to do is realize, wait, maybe we should count it. <laughs> you know, maybe you should make a point of this because um, it's really good. Right. And, and following up on that, uh, it's very difficult to get carbon credits or carbon offset credits for uh, applying compost either to uh, farms or rangelands or other types of uh, so there's a couple so you can through um, it's it's coming a recognition of the importance of soils in climate resilience is coming you're seeing that um, 
one of the and there's been a big um big is is in my small world uh there's been a recent flurry of activity associated with this and one of them is the way we do carbon accounting um in a way you can think of it as pulling money out of thin air or a lot thicker air with all the co2 in it um but um you're trying to put value on something that nobody can see and so you have to be fairly conservative in how you do your markets and how you do your crediting because it's it in a way you're making stuff up and you're not right. but it it's it's very difficult you're not going to measure every piece of dirt or every landfill and right. so there's no protocol yeah so with the whole goal of permanence the with the soil carbon you've been wanting to say that if I put a piece of carbon in that soil, it's still going to be there when I come back in 50 years. And there's in the soil science field, there's been a growing recognition is that's not how it works. You want that carbon to be active. You want it to be alive. You want it to be cycling through the system. So as you're making the soil more productive, the plants are going to grow bigger. In that soil, you you said that earlier that your grass with the amendment was twice the size of the grass without it. Yeah, so that means that is fixing more CO two from the atmosphere. More of that's going to end up in the soil. A portion of that's going to cycle back. But then the next year, because the soil is even richer, the plants are going to get even better. Especially since so many of our soils are degraded. So it's not like the one piece of carbon is going to be there, but the equilibrium carbon concentration is going to be higher. And we're getting a recognition that that's okay. We can count that. That's a good thing. And this goes in the whole understanding of soil health. Um, and it, it's sort of like um, the difference between being a couch potato and then going on slow walks and then doing a, a 5k and then, you know, you got to keep moving to keep those benefits, but that doesn't mean those benefits aren't real. They're very real. Right. Uh, um, and so we're starting to understand that there was just an article out um, and Kate Scow from UC Davis was one of the authors Basically, like policy guys, come on, understand carbon cycling. It's okay. It's good. So, yeah, Aggies. Yeah. So let it let it come. It's it's getting there. I, just a quick aside. I've noticed we have a lot of Aggies in the uh, zero waste world. Yep. But you know, I was surprised they they weren't even doing on uh, site composting there. We had to send it away. It's like, come on, you're this big ag school. It's Why a are different you not mentality because tradition or ag as it's been has been chemical dependent. One of the big issues in this whole field is you're not getting the connect the dots part. Right, and you know exactly what I'm saying. The city manager of the solid waste program knows how to call a consultant. They have no idea how to call a farmer. The right. farmer has no idea how to call the city to say, can I get some of that stuff? So one of the things we need to do is do a lot better at making the connection. Now, the other thing to realize is that connection is much easier to make if it's 
you're trying to connect with the same people that filled the green bin to start with. And a lot of those people have backyards or those cities have parks. Um, Those cities have highways with right-of-ways. There's a lot of ways you can use a compost right in an urban area. And even if we composted all of our food scraps, we wouldn't have enough to apply to more than 1% or 2% of the ag soils. Um, And so it becomes a question of how to best use it and where to best use it. Yeah. And where where do you think that best use of of compost would be? Ag or? Um, You know, that's really tough. I, I, um, if you understand how much manure is out there and how much agricultural residue is out there, my, my first reaction is use it on the farms, man. You got to use it on the farms. Right. But then I think, you know, then you got the transport, then you got the, this, then you got the, that local use of a lot of these products can do so much, but the corollary to that is that also means that the the residues on farm, the manures on farm also need to be treated as a resource. And if you have uh, a dairy that's making, I don't know, 50 tons of animal manure, uh, however often cows, you know, it's something like a cow makes two tons of poop a year or something. It's ridiculous. Um, but if that can get used locally and used well, and then the stuff, the part that we get in the city can get used and used well, then you really have success. If that, you're not nodding as much as I'd like you to for this. Major. No, it makes sense. You know, you don't want to transport this really heavy stuff when you can use it uh, locally in towns and cities to do, you know, soil remediation, urban forestry, all of that. I, I, you know, I follow you. I'm just... Um, you know, blown away by uh, what you're saying about, you know, 2% of... Um... Well, and then, so this is the deal. Study after study shows that this is the best stuff for soil that we have. Right. It's not going to be the answer to the whole problem because we, right. don't, we don't have, have enough. enough. So we don't even fa- have enough compost facilities to make, uh, you know, the compost we need to divert the food waste from landfills. There's like 200 facilities we need to build in California just to deal with our current food waste. So the the point then is that we're wasting any of it, to me, is criminal. Um, yeah. And then the, a way to think about the food waste in the city versus on the farm is, have you grown tomatoes ever? Yeah, I have this really spiky variety right now. It's kind of a pain to deal with because they're, they're worse than roses. Well, so the way to think of it is, the, I mean, for us... We have so much foliage on the tomatoes, and then there's the, the fruit part. And so we get the fruit part in the city, but all that foliage, just a corn stalk, your fresh corn fields, there's a lot of vegetative growth on the plant that's not the part you eat. And so if you think of it that way, like the cauliflower plant, we had our first successful head of cauliflower in the garden this year. Congrats. Um, thank you. Um but the the plant part is gigantic. The cauliflower stem that we had in the kitchen that, of course, went into the compost bin was nothing compared. So there's a lot of farm residue that can right. be well used. 
Well, I don't want to uh, disrespect your time. I know you're a very busy woman, but um, this has been a great episode, and I didn't even get to ask you about you know, the, the water savings and some other stuff. So hopefully you'll be open to coming back again at a future date. Um, and, and thanks and so much for being on And it would be even when we don't have house guests so I could do it from the living room. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Always welcome. Anyway, thanks for asking me and happy to come back anytime. So good. All right. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye, everybody. Bye.